0: You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's BMJ podcast. I'm Berta Twizzleman, one of the BMJ's web editors. This week, the editor of BMJ.com, David Payne, will be talking to health policy and ethics analyst Emily Friedman about healthcare in Cambodia. But before that, I'm joined by Richard Hurley with this week's
2: news. Hello, Rich. Hello, Berta. What have you got for us this week? Well, first of all, I I wanted to talk about two articles this week that talk about the Australian government's decision to remove branding from cigarette packets. Apparently, that's a world first. Tobacco companies are no longer allowed to advertise on billboards or on television in places like that, but the designs of their packets still act as a a marketing agent, which every smoker is carrying around and and showing uh, to other people. So by stopping tobacco companies using packets as uh, marketing agents the government hopes to um, reduce the number of smokers.
1: So exactly what are they going to do?
2: The rule will come into effect mid-2012 and uh, it'll ban industry logos and brand imagery from the packets as well as uh, colours and promotional text other than the product name in a standard colour, position, typeface, and size on the packet.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: The Australian government's also said that it's going to crack down on internet advertising of tobacco and invest in more anti smoking advertising campaigns. Right, and
1: what has been the reaction to this?
2: Well, tobacco companies have uh, got upset and a couple of them have signalled that they might try and challenge the ban in the court. Some of the arguments say that the ban's unconstitutional, preventing them from going about you know, their legal business. And um, also they've mentioned um, arguments around seizure of trademarks.
1: Uh, public health experts must be absolutely ecstatic.
2: Yes, I think that's right. Um, they think this, this will denormalise tobacco products and um, prevent them from being seen as ordinary grocery items competing for consumers' attention. In a personal view this week by Becky Freeman and Simon Chapman, both at Sydney's School of Public Health, uh, they talk about a domino effect, um, how once this happens in Australia it may be replicated all around the world, um, and talk about the e- the end of a century of... The tobacco industry packaging its carcinogenic addictive products in attractive, beguiling boxes. Well, that sounds like we're going to be hearing more about it as time goes by. Yes, I think we will.
1: Thanks, Rich. Um, What else have you got for us?
2: I thought this week, Berta, I'd also talk about what's going on on student.bmj.com which is our website dedicated to medical students and which has had a bit of a facelift in recent months. Very good. One article that that we've recently published um, is a news feature by Donald Asprey. He's written an article about the uh, traffic light scheme for labelling food, which has got stuck on its way through the European Parliament.
1: So this is the system we see nationwide in the UK in supermarkets?
2: yes uh, some manufacturers and supermarkets in the UK have adopted this scheme um, and so yeah I'm sure we're all used to seeing the red amber and green colors on foods to show high medium and low levels of sugar fat or salt for example so what's caused the hold-up in the Parliament well the uh, the systems failed to get past the Environment Committee in the European Parliament and one of the criticisms from a German member of is that uh, the system is misleading for consumers. For example, um, oil or uh, butter or margarine would have red labels for their fat levels um, and that suggests to consumers that perhaps they should never eat them. But in fact, if you never ate foods that had red labels, if you never ate oil, butter or margarine, you would be having uh, an, an imbalanced diet.
1: All right, so that sounds like another story we will be hearing more about.
2: Yes, the traffic light system is going to be voted on again in the European Parliament later this year, so no doubt we'll be back in the news then. Well, thanks, Rich.
1: That's all the news for this week. Now, David Payne talks to Emily Friedman about healthcare in Cambodia.
0: Emily Friedman is an independent writer, lecturer, and health policy and ethics analyst based in Chicago. Now, Emily was due to be a speaker at the BMJ's International Forum on Quality and Safety in Healthcare but the grounding of planes by the Icelandic volcano meant she wasn't able to attend. Instead, I caught up with her by phone. One subject that Emily talks passionately about is Cambodia, a country with a difficult past that is now rebuilding its healthcare system to try and meet some of the particular needs of its population. Emily started by telling me a bit about its history.
3: You had a country, still a kingdom, still largely rural, still focused on the growing of rice. High rates of illiteracy, poor health status, and several urban centers, but basically a a ruling elite, a royal family, and a great many poor people. Not an unusual description of a third world country. Cambodia's problem, as one writer said, however, has always been its location. Cambodia's disaster began... During the earlier years of the Vietnam War, when in order to avoid American bombing, North Vietnamese troops moved into Cambodia and simply crossed the border.
0: The US wasn't happy to leave the Viet Cong in the neighbouring country, but the then ruler of Cambodia, Prince Sihanouk, didn't have the military resources to prevent the incursion and so tacitly allowed it to continue. In 1969, President Nixon secretly launched Operation Breakfast, a concerted bombing campaign, illegal by both American and international law, Over the next four years, 540,000 tons of bombs were dropped on Cambodia.
3: And the bombing became very heavy. The Vietnamese, who are not stupid, moved further into Cambodia and the bombing followed them. By the time the American Congress stopped the bombing in 1973, half of Cambodia had been carpet bombed. Estimates of how many people died range from 250,000 to 1 million. But the infrastructure of the country in the eastern and southern parts of the country, was pretty much flattened, and that included hospitals, clinics, entire villages, and a great many human beings.
0: The devastation brought internal strife and civil war erupted. The winning faction came from the north of the country. It was called the Khmer Rouge, Khmer from the indigenous ethnic population, Rouge for Red or Communist, and it was led by Pol Pot. And they wanted to create a peasant's paradise, I understand, didn't they, with no ruling elite, and they and they, and they uh, went. Yes, to-
3: uh, he, it, it was basic sort of extreme radical Maoism, mm. uh, but he had sort of a twist on it. Uh, the Vietnamese, when they tried to do the same thing, sent people to re-education camps. Pol Pot, who was the leader of the Khmer Rouge, uh, had a simpler idea, and that was simply to kill everybody. Mm. If you wore glasses if you spoke French or English, in many cases, if you were literate. If you showed any evidence of being anything other than a rice growing peasant, your chances of survival were very slim.
0: And that included doctors?
3: Uh, Doctors were focused on actually, there was a real desire to get rid of any form of Western medicine. There were only 13 hospitals left at the time anyway in the entire country, most of them were abandoned. Uh, Physicians were killed, nurses were killed, uh, Buddhist monks who served an important role for spiritual healing. There were 30,000 Buddhist monks when the KR took over, 3,000 survived. Mm. So it was wholesale slaughter of the educated classes such as they were.
0: Yes, now that period thankfully has now passed but what is its legacy being? Could you talk a little bit about that?
3: Please understand that the healthcare system that largely disappeared uh... during the period of violence wasn't all that great shakes to begin with it's important to understand it wasn't like they destroyed you know the national health in in uh, the u.k but the uh... situation in a city like phnom penh was if you had the money you could go to one of these clinics and you could get very good care maternal and child health is clearly the biggest problem Mm. Uh, the maternal mortality rate uh, the last figure i saw i think it's down a little bit now the last figure I saw was that it was well above 400 deaths per 100,000, which is simply unacceptable. Mm. Uh, that's far too high a rate. And uh, Dr. Jos Panita, who is the Deputy Director General in the Ministry of Health, who I just met with last month, told me that one of the major problems is the availability of people who are capable of providing cesarean sections is simply not out there in the rural areas and if you need a c-section you're going to be in big trouble a secondary issue is that malnutrition is rampant a great many cambodian women are anemic if they run into trouble during childbirth they hemorrhage and they die quickly hmm. uh... infant mortality is the worst in southeast asia and uh... doctor william houseworth who uh, an american pediatrician who runs the anchor hospital for children which is just a superb institution uh he he does a sort of good news bad news thing where he says, Well the good news is that uh it used to be that one in every five Cambodian children didn't make it to the age of five. Uh the good news allegedly is that now it's only one in fifteen. Hmm. But for those of us in a first world situation, uh, you get sick to your stomach at at statistics like that. Yes and, and
0: diabetes is very high there, isn't it? I, yes, I
3: diabetes uh which people are very surprised by because uh, these are, are thin people. Obesity, is it, it's going to be, but it is not a big problem in Cambodia. Hmm. And a lot of it, again, goes back to the, the Khmer Rouge period that it is generally believed now that women who were malnourished or starving while they were pregnant tend to produce children who will have health problems their entire lives, and that, unfortunately, has played out in Cambodia. Part of it is... Uh, chronically underweight people with small pancreases, quite frankly, and a rice diet. Rice is a very high glucose food. Mm. So, if people even put on a few pounds, it can be too much for the pancreas. And so, at this point, 11% of the urban population, 5% of the rural population have type 2 diabetes. Wow. Gestational diabetes is also a problem in pregnant women, obviously. Mm. But uh, the most uh, tragic thing I can tell you comes from a remarkable uh, man who works in Cambodia. He's a he's from the Netherlands. His name is Moritz Van Pelt. He's worked with Doctors Without Borders for years. Uh, he's with a different group now, Moipo Mo- But I was interviewing him last month, and uh, he said, you know why there's no type 1 diabetes in Cambodia? And I said... I could guess, and he said, yes, it's because they all die.
0: Now often, when those of us in the Western world think of Cambodia, we imagine the horrific images of platforms covered in skulls that are all that remain of the victims of the Khmer Rouge. In Cambodia, living through those atrocities has left scars on many of the people.
3: The problem of depression uh, is... I think epidemic really is a proper term. And it is confined to certain groups. There is a huge difference between the younger population of Cambodia and the older one. Half the population of Cambodia, probably more at this point, is under the age of 30. The government, uh, which has many former Khmer Rouge officers in it, uh, has declared that the Khmer Rouge period is not to be taught in the schools. Many young people are totally unaware of what happened to their country. Older people have learned as a matter of self-preservation and also because of of certain forms of, of Buddhist self-discipline and thought, have simply learned not to talk about it. Mm. The result is you have huge amounts of post-traumatic stress disorder. You have huge amounts of, of depression. Any clinician yes. would tell you that depression will exacerbate almost any physical condition a person has. Yes. Post-traumatic stress disorder produces insomnia, nausea hypertension, a whole wide variety of things, and the suppression of it, the keeping it inside, the bottling Mm. it up, only makes it worse. And every single practitioner I have spoken to has cited depression and trauma, both in Cambodia and in the United States, where several hundred thousand Cambodians live, most of them refugees, many of them heavily traumatized and still unwilling to seek help
0: one lesson that Emily says is important in Cambodia, and anywhere else where NGOs and aid agencies are delivering help, is to make sure that it's tailored for the country.
3: It's extremely important in any setting, whether it's in Chicago or in Phnom Penh, is the solution that we come up with actually has to be applicable to the situation. I know that sounds really dumb, but, for example, most forms of insulin have to be refrigerated. Mm. That's not going to work out real well in a country where nobody has refrigerators. No. And what Mapozio has done under Mr. Van Pelt's leadership is a contract with an organization in Australia called Insulin for All, which has developed a form of insulin that can be kept unrefrigerated for a month. And if you look at the more successful programs, these are programs that don't go by what the NGO thinks the priorities should be or what a pharmaceutical company thinks it might be able to sell, but by what the actual need is. And Cambodia is a living, breathing example of the utter necessity for knowing what the need is on the ground and coming up with appropriate solutions.
0: Now, Emily, you've said before that despite the massive difference in starting points, not to mention investment, technology, expertise between the Cambodian-American healthcare systems, that there is actually similarities in the difficulties they face. Well, I think if you look at the issues that have been identified
3: to me by people working in Cambodian healthcare, one of the things I was struck by is the number of parallels. For example, Uh, Although all Cambodian physicians currently being trained in Cambodia are trained as primary care physicians, most of them immediately start specializing. One might specialize in OB. One might specialize in infectious disease. uh, One might go on to to hone certain surgical skills. And as a result, uh, there's an insufficiency of primary care physicians still practicing general medicine. Absolutely the same problem in the United States. Uh, We've been trying to address it for years. There are many provisions in the new health reform law trying to get at it. Uh, The second problem that Cambodia is facing, which is uh, eminently true in the United States, is people want to practice in the cities. They don't want to practice in rural areas, and all the usual reasons that are true in both countries, uh, small towns, lack of possibilities of professional advancement, Uh, lack of a collegial environment. The reasons are the same in both countries. Yes,
0: and and you believe the U.S. can actually learn from Cambodia? I
3: think that many of these lessons are applicable to my own country, but I also will tell you in all honesty that I despair of uh, most American policy wonks or others uh, paying much attention to these lessons. Uh, The United States is an extremely insular society in some ways, and one of its problems is... Uh, a widespread belief that, quote, we have the best healthcare system in the world, end quote, and therefore there isn't anything that anybody else can teach us. I think there are three lessons coming out of Cambodia that are extremely important. One of them is what I mentioned uh, at the beginning, and that is you need to have a properly trained and sufficient in number healthcare workforce that is adequately distributed. We're we're the wealthiest society on earth, and we don't have it. And so what Cambodia has turned to, which makes absolutely perfect sense, is looking at what can be done by people other than physicians, training community health aides, training community health workers. This is going to happen organically in the United States because we're so short of primary care physicians that the nurses are filling the gap. And nurse practitioners, in my prediction, will be providing a large amount of primary care in the United States within 10 years, perhaps a
0: majority of it. Well, Emily, it's been really fascinating to talk to you about Cambodia, and thanks very much for joining us today. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be talking about the problems of
1: antibiotic resistance and the lack of new drugs to counteract the problem. Join us then.